You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, in Exodus chapter 23, we are still looking at the national law for the nation of Israel. Of course, it really all boiled down to the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20, but shooting off from those Ten Commandments, God gave specific laws for the nation of Israel that the judges could get their hands onto, which would help them make decisions as different cases were brought to them from the nation. Just a well-governed, well-articulated, clear kind of set of rules and laws that the people of Israel were residing under. And of course, as I mentioned previously, Exodus 21 verse 1 is really the title of this section of Exodus. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And so really you have these rules in Exodus 21, 22, and now here in chapter 23. In chapter 24, we'll see this covenant confirmed between God and his people And then really the end of the book of Exodus is going to deal more with the ceremonial worship laws amongst the nation. The first thing that we see here in Exodus chapter 23 is that in order for this entire judicial system to succeed, there were certain elements that had to be strong. There had to be faithful witnesses There had to be just laws, which of course God was providing, and there had to be honest judges. And so God here uses his words to build up and strengthen the faithfulness of this judicial system in the nation of Israel. And of course, it just reminds us of the great faithfulness and justness of God. And in one sense, provides us with, as God's people, great hope. A kingdom is coming, and in that kingdom, Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. And as he rules and reigns, he will rule justly and righteously and perfectly. It will be an absolute joy and pleasure to see his kingdom realized and lived out here on earth and in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so his kingdom, his rule, his leadership is best. And at times we might find ourselves discouraged by the nation that we're living in, by the laws of the land, by the judgments and counsels and decisions of the land, by the judicial process, by dishonest judges or unfaithful witnesses. But in those moments of discouragement with what is, we can be encouraged and turn our attention to the great kingdom that is ours currently in Christ, but is also yet to be realized and will be fully realized at the end of the age when he returns on that great day and establishes his kingdom and judges all that is. And so here in Exodus 23, we see God continuing to describe for the people of Israel what their justice system would look like. And he says in verse 1, he says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Now, this has a bit to do with just the commandment to, you know, not lie or bear false witness. 
But really, in, in one sense, what he's dealing with is not just the generic temptation to lie about another, but actually in that courtroom kind of setting to make sure that you did not spread a false report or behave as a malicious witness. Now, the truth is that slander is a vicious sin. Paul told us in Colossians 3, verse 8, he says, You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You know, the spreading of a false report commanded against here for the people of Israel, but also for us as children of God in the church age and era, we're to be a people who do not spread a false report. In the era and day and age that we're living in, it is so easy to spread a false report with a couple of keystrokes and the click of a mouse. You can, you know, do great damage to a person's reputation. It is so important, it's imperative amongst God's people that they not believe everything that they hear. It might be a false report that you're seeing, but also that they are slow to speak slow to communicate, lest we communicate that which is false. He says in verse 2, he says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You won't rush with the crowd. There's the temptation. I mean, this is part of the reason, even in our current legal system here in the United States, they want to make sure that a potential juror has not been tainted by perhaps the popular media and what they have reported on a potential crime or matter before it's been actually hashed out in a court of law. So here you've got the same thing. As a witness, you cannot fall in with the many to do evil. You can't move with them and run with them towards some kind of false judgment or false report. But in a larger sense, it speaks to the tendency of the human heart, doesn't it? To rush towards evil with the many. You know, there's this error of thought that tells us that when many people believe it and many people practice it, then the belief or the practice must be good and right and true because after all, many people have accepted it. Now, just because many people have done it, all that proves is that it is the accepted practice. It doesn't mean that it's the right belief or the right practice. Jesus said, in some very penetrating words in Matthew chapter 7, he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If you were to judge what the truth is based on the amount of people traveling on the different path, you would look at that wide gate and that easy way, and there are many that find it. And you would look at it and say, well, look, most people are going in this direction. Most people believe this way, but it would be folly. 
That is the way to death. Jesus said that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. In verse 3, he says, Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. There would be the temptation to take into account the financial status of a person for the good or the bad, showing some kind of partiality towards them in making your judgment. Perhaps you look at a poor man and the judge would say to himself, well, certainly this poor man can't afford to make payment, or certainly this poor man could use an additional payment to come his way, and he could render a judgment that would favor the man because of his impoverished condition. Or the judge could be corrupted and look at the wealthy man and the poor man in court together, and he could lean in favor of the wealthy man because the poor man, after all, doesn't have anything with which to bribe him or whatever. So the Lord holds it out. He says, listen, a poor man has to stand on his own two feet. You shall not be partial to a poor man. You shall not boost him up falsely. You need to treat him with dignity. If he owes, he owes. If he's committed a crime, he's committed a crime. If he's guilty, he's guilty. It doesn't matter what his station in life is. If he's stolen ox, he needs to make things right. If he's guilty, he's guilty. Don't go easy on him because of his poverty. And that means much coming from a God who is so compassionate toward the poor. But he goes on and he says in verse 4, he says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray. And by enemy, this likely means, you know, your legal adversary. But for our case, just think of anybody that you're at odds with. You meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray. You shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, he said, Do unto others as you wish that they would do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. And here we have a great example of that. You're cruising down the road, verse 4. You see your enemy's ox or donkey going astray. You know, in the wickedness of our hearts, as human beings, we would see that scene unfold and we would say to ourselves, well, it serves them right. They're getting what they deserve. The way that they've treated me and the way that they've spoken to me and the way that they've, you know, been towards me, it serves them right that their ox or their donkey is going astray. I hope it gets lost. I hope it dies. My enemy has this coming towards them. But God says, no, you see it, you shall bring it back to him. That ox or donkey in that moment, guess what? It becomes your responsibility. Once again, the taking of responsibility, the ownership of the care of those around you. And really, in one sense, you just imagine what this would do, the opportunity that this would provide. You know, you bring back the ox to your enemy. You knock on the front door. A little confrontation ensues. And then 
the truth is discovered that your enemy's ox was on the loose and you took it and found it and brought it back to him as a good will gesture, taking responsibility for your enemy's life. Who knows that that might be the action that leads to reconciliation between you and your adversary and brings peace between you. He says, you know, and if you're walking along, you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying down under its burden. You know, it can't go any further. It's lying down. It's being crushed. You can't leave that donkey there. It's now your responsibility. You have to rescue that donkey, whatever it takes. Get a group of people together to lift that burden. But it will negatively impact your enemy if you leave it there and you are not allowed to promote anything like that. So you've got to get in there and pick up that burden. And so you cannot move on. You know, really what you're seeing here is that this would be, if they continued on the path, it would be a sin of omission. Not that there was some evil thing that they did, but a good thing that they did not do. And I think so often in the church, we focus in on the bad that we are not to do instead of thinking of the great good that we are to do. You know, I'm so glad that Jesus, who was pure and righteous, perfect, is the second member of the Trinity, before he ever stepped out of heaven and became flesh and dwelt among us, he was perfect and pure and righteous. When it came to sin, he could rightly say, I have done no sin. But that wasn't enough for him. He looked down upon us, and although it would not have been sin for him to stay in heaven, he took responsibility and he said, I want to not only refrain from evil, I want to do great good. And we're covered by his blood, redeemed by him. We want to be his people. It's for us to extend ourselves as he extended himself for us, and not just refrain from evil, but to be active in the good. He goes on in verse 6, as we pick it up a little bit. He says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So the Lord says here, listen, you cannot use the judicial system to kill the innocent, to kill the righteous. He says, listen, I will not acquit the wicked. There is grace, there is justification in Christ, but the Lord is a righteous judge. And you shall take no bribe, verse 8, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. And so the Lord knows. He knows that bribery, which was a common temptation in that era and in that region, which is so fascinating to me because a bribe in the justice system just communicates that the appearance of justice is so important to you. But in reality, true justice is not important to you. So why put up the charade? Why engage in the farce? But God numerous times warned against bribery amongst the people in Israel. And even today, Money can easily corrupt the best of God's people. Yeah, I mean, still, obviously, just the law of love itself would cause us to say, yeah, I don't want to accept a, a bribe. I don't want to be negatively swayed or influenced through money. I want to be influenced and led by the Lord. I want to follow his lead over my life. 
I don't want to corrupt my life, my ministry, my family, my integrity for the love of money. You know, the love of money can corrupt so much inside of your heart. And so I find that one of the greatest ways to make sure that money doesn't have this kind of power over you is to give it away. You give it away from time to time. You have a loose hand upon it and it loses so much of its power over your heart and life. He says, verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So we have this command Mention once again, again, time and time again, God is going to remind them, you were sojourners. You had been treated unfairly in Egypt. You know what it's like to be treated unjustly. Do not treat others unjustly here as well. You know, and so whatever you've faced, you've been bullied, you have compassion on bullies. You've been treated unjustly, you have compassion on those who have been treated unjustly. And so the Lord tells them, he says, listen, your past should cause you to be compassionate to others inside of your life. Which I think is so redeeming for us because so many of us have experienced deep injustice in our lives, sometimes even from those who we love the most or are closest to us. And it's good to know that those injustices can be used for great good. Now, verse 10, he goes on to talk about the celebration of these holy times, their worship. He says, for six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days, you shall do no work. But on the seventh day, you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant, woman, and the alien may be refreshed. So the Lord set up this Sabbath system, not just in the weekly system. That's part of it. Six days they would work, and the seventh day they would rest. Notice there in verse 12, so that everyone, including the animals and the servants, would be refreshed. This is the goal of God. But on top of that, the land would also go through a Sabbath, not every seventh day, but every seventh year. You would cultivate it for six years, and on the seventh year, you would let it rest, which would, of course, require great faith on the part of the people to really trust the Lord, to provide for them, even during that time where their land was at rest. And unfortunately, in their future, for 490 years, they lacked this faith. That meant that there were 70 Sabbath years that went by that they did not allow their land to rest. And so God took them away into captivity into Babylon for 70 years so that the land could get its 70 years of rest that it had coming. But it's interesting to me that faith in God would be so rewarding for them because they would find rest. Faith rewards you with rest. I know in my life and, and ministry and the times that I have no faith and the times that I take matters into my own hands or the times that I, you know, fear so intensely, there's no rest. But when I move out and work hard and I'm diligent, but with faith all along inside of my heart, there is great rest there. He says in verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So 
Again, a reminder of Exodus 20, verse 3 from the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Three times a year, verse 14, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the, number one, feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. So the first feast would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They celebrated this already after the initial Passover there in Egypt. And it was a way for them to remember their quick departure from Egypt and commemorate the Exodus itself. He says, verse 16, you shall keep the Feast of Harvest, number two, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. This would be in there in our fall. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So that's feast number three. Number two, the feast of harvest, a way for them to celebrate the spring and God's provision for them, also called the feast of weeks or the feast of first fruits in the New Testament era called the time of Pentecost. And uh, this would occur Seven weeks after the Feast of Unleavened Bread had begun, this tells us that the Holy Spirit then was poured out 50 days after Jesus went to Calvary. And, uh, and then the Feast of Ingathering, held in the early fall, this one would celebrate the wilderness wanderings, also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And so he says to them three times a year, verse 17, Shall all your males appear before the Lord God? You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So verse 17, it's the males would go three times each year to the Lord's house to offer their sacrifices to worship the Lord during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of In-Gathering, or Tabernacles, or Booths. Three times these men would appear. And I, I think it just highlights for us once again, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the importance of God's dealing with men. God has established men to be leaders in their homes and within the church amongst God's people. Quite often, men are leaders within the culture at large in general, whether it's companies or, you know, nations or kingdoms or politically. But within the home and within God's church, men are called into leadership. And they do lead, sometimes for great good and other times for great evil. And so here it was so important for the men to three times each year approach God at the tabernacle and offer their sacrifices. They were not to come, as it said, empty-handed. They weren't to come to the tabernacle in order to receive. They were to come to the tabernacle in order to give. Oh, how we would be helped if we came to the church and came to the gathering of God's people with a little bit more of this kind of attitude. I'm not coming with an empty hand to receive, but I'm coming to give. Who can I bless? Who can I give to? How much can I give to the work of God's church here on earth? Even financially, these are great attitudes for a person to have. And they were to offer, of course, the best of the first fruits of the ground. A real test for them. Would they give, number one, and 
Would they give their best? Number two, would they give sacrificially? Now, you've got this really obscure little line there at the end of verse 19. He says, you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Some think that even today, the Jewish prohibition against, amongst Orthodox Jews, of eating meat with dairy stems from this command. And it's hard to say exactly what the Lord is referring to, but most people think that God is referring to a reference to a fertility rite in the Canaanite worship pagan system and is talking about that and saying, listen, you're not to get into that kind of thing. That's not where your fertility comes from. Your fertility comes from simple obedience to me. And God would make that promise to them nationally as the people of Israel. Perhaps God is just saying, listen, this would be a mean thing to do, killing a young goat and cooking it in its mother's milk. But I tend to think that he's probably referring to some kind of pagan worship practice. And so here we have a real natural division in the giving of the law. Before we get into the next section in in verse 20, which we'll cover in our next time together, where God is going to establish his angel and his blessing upon the nation of Israel, it's good to just pause at this moment and think of the law that God had given to the nation, the justice with which they would treat those who were sojourners, less than privileged, the poor, the widow, the orphan. They were to be a generous, kind people to the disadvantaged. They were also to be a people who took responsibility for others, whether it was the ox that they owned that persisted to gore others and all of that, or whether it was seeing an enemy's ox or donkey straying and wandering. They took responsibility for each other. So justice, responsibility, and uh, they were to be kind to one another. And we're to take advantage of slaves and workers and all of that. These were people who were establishing human rights, so to speak. And especially given the culture that they came out of there in Egypt, this is a massive thing that is happening here as God delivers this law to his people there in that wilderness. This is not a primitive society that God is developing. He is taking them out of primitive societies. He is removing the objectification of women from their system. He is establishing rights of even those who are low on the social order and would not be considered the high class regarding their wealth. He is putting a value upon every single human being. And like I said, there's so much that we can glean from, so much that we can learn from Exodus 20 to 23. And next week, we'll see God promise them great blessing if they obey his word. And of course, we know that there is great blessing in being obedient to the Lord. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.